and you're back for another episode of the Pre-Combat Check Podcast. Thanks for joining. When most people think of snipers, they think of a guy isolated in a ghillie suit waiting for days to take one shot. Today my guests were a sniper team in the 75th Ranger Regiment. They will share some stories, experiences, advice, and talk about how Ranger snipers have adapted to the modern battlefield. Enjoy the show. Alright, cool. Fellas, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Good to be on. You guys were a sniper team. How did you like working together? I loved it. I mean, I love working with George. I actually had, I, so I got five deployments as a sniper, and I actually had four different sniper partners. I deployed twice with George, and by hands down, he was the best one out of them. I mean, for example, one of them I almost got in a fist fight with overseas. One of them I didn't talk to hardly, and another one was an idiot. York was by far the easiest to get along with. Well, I mean, it does help we're talking with him right now, so you can... <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I would tell the truth if he wasn't. The first time I found out I was going to work with Flager was, I don't know, a couple weeks before deployment. Because originally I was supposed to deploy with two Bravo, and then at the last second they told me I was deploying with one Bravo. So Ryan and I had almost no... I Honestly, I don't even know how much train-up time we had. We had like a week maybe together, and then there we went. And that was a weird one too because we showed up to Kandahar and then they told us that, I think that minute, they're like, oh hey, you guys are going to Shank instead now. So it was a whole fucking crazy, uh, you know, just roll with the punches kind of thing. And that was a pretty hectic deployment you guys went on. The bird overseas was crazy because we had to put on those emergency air breather bags. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, didn't we have to turn around to Maine? No, we were over Germany, and then we it was yeah. about an hour into it, and all the Air Force guys started putting on their masks. They didn't say anything to us. They just kept putting on their masks. After about 10, 15 minutes of lights flashing, the birds started to speed up, and then they told us to put on our masks, then we turned back to Germany. Yeah, yeah. Like, from the get-go, that trip was just ridiculous. I was like, what the fuck is going on? There's not enough air canisters for everyone to have, like, two rounds of air. Dude, I forgot about that. That was crazy. That was hilarious. What a way to start that deployment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's never happened to me. You know, like that was such a weird thing to, to have happen. <laughs> Agreed. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm glad you guys worked out together and it really showed your camaraderie and you guys are still good friends now, which is really cool. I love York, man. All right, so what is a sniper and what are their roles and responsibilities? So I think that a biggest misconception of like a sniper is a lot of people think like Vietnam style, let's just say me and York going out all by ourselves. It obviously depends on what unit you're in and the mission, what theater, where you deployed, but like everything, right? But for Ranger Regiment uh, specific, we do it a little bit different. We're more like an Overwatch team. We directly support the platoons. So, for example, let's say the platoon's hitting Building A, we might be on Building B, Overwatching the whole area, something like that. Not necessarily like out up on a mountaintop all by ourselves. We kind of gone away from that just because we're more of a direct action unit, it makes more sense to use this that way, which I actually prefer because it seems like there's a lot more action that we're seeing. We're not just sitting there uh, making a couple of radio calls. We're we're right on top of the building. We're right on top of the courtyard, laddering up right there with the platoon as if, you know, we are the direct action unit with them. So I love it that way. Misconception is like sniper team, like two man out all by themselves. It's not necessarily like that anymore just depends on the mission and you guys were pretty close to the main element is what you're describing correct yeah we were we're pretty much right on top of them if anything a lot of times we were the first ones to get eyes inside the compound we were usually and every every platoon does this differently something i noticed from being a private to when i was working with ryan ryan had a lot of pool with one bravo because of that i got to see a different side of snipers doing things on target that i'd never seen before such as you know, we were leading out um, on the infill, going to target a lot. And then we would even have like a small leading element with us. So it was just like four or five of us up there, up ahead. A lot of team leaders are the ones that took over that specific job and started doing that instead. I worked so hard to gain that trust. We were building the HLZs, building the routes, um, submitting everything to the pilots. Uh, we were briefing the routes. As a sniper team, we were doing that for the whole platoon. And then we, of course, we're laddering it up. As they were setting in the blocking positions, which normally would go first, we would be laddering up, which a lot of PLs and platoon sergeants don't necessarily want. But we had a lot of trust, and they would allow us to do that, which I think that gave York and I a, a 
keys of the city, so to speak, just because there was such a trust element with us, and we were so far off the leash that we could just, like, any new tactics or any new SOPs that we came up with as a team, we'd pitch it to the platoon, and almost no pushback usually. And it allowed us, like, a lot of freedom to do a lot of what I thought was really good stuff on target. Personally, from my experience, I had a different role than you guys, but I was able to see what you guys did and other snipers on target. And I always thought snipers were one of the most crucial dudes there. You, you filled any gap that needed to be filled, and you were always essentially the first guy either to get in contact or to be part of that fight. Every time I heard where a sniper was going, I would try and be there because I knew that something was going to happen. And if it did happen, that guy would be there to take care of it. Some of the team leaders and squad leaders getting mad at me because I was always getting in contact more than they were. Yeah, it's hilarious. Like normally, you know, you're with an element, your squad's on blocking positions or you're assaulting. You can't leave those lanes. Those have to be covered down. And, you know, if, if all the action's happening on the other side of the compound, it doesn't matter. you got to stay where you are in case someone tries to come in the other way. Being a sniper, you, you have no fixed position you have to be in. You're so mobile and you can, your, your whole job is to move to contact, essentially. So since you said that uh, the roles are different than Vietnam, uh, what role do each sniper, why do you have a two-man team in range regiment if you do a different role? Shooter, shooter is what a lot of our tactics have moved to. So originally, traditionally, you have a shooter and a spotter. But now with the Overwatch type of SOPs and everything, it's a shooter, shooter combo. I think having someone on the ground that can help, that knows your job as well, is just really important. You kind of, that's your buddy. You're attached to a platoon. You're not, you're not necessarily organic to it. So you don't, you might not have a ton of close friends or, personnel in the platoon, but your sniper partner is always going to be someone you work with year-round. A good example to explain it to, you know, people listening would be uh, kind of like a SWAT team. You, like, let's say they're positioned in front of the building, but the guy's moving to the back. We would just move to the back. We'll flank either to the right side or left side, whatever we had to do. York said perfect. We're both shooter-shooter. It's not like I was on a spotting scope, because most of the time we, we, we work at night anyways, and a lot of the engagements are 100 meters or closer. Mm-hmm. shoot probably like 30 meters and closer most of the time even as a sniper i think that's the best way to look at it It'd be more like a swat team type of direct action more than a spotter shooter so then speaking of direct action in that movie american sniper they show him clearing with the sniper rifle what did you guys think about that is that realistic so bro i've actually cool cleared rooms with a pistol i know I'm, i probably shouldn't have been doing it but i've done it because sometimes i like york was saying that we would flex and do a lot of things like I probably did a lot of things that person shouldn't have done, but I would sometimes ladder down and clear rooms with a pistol with guys. I'd fall in the stack sometimes. Should I have been doing that? Maybe not, but it was fun. Yeah, I've had to clear on that big operation. I had to clear with my M110. That's the beauty of having a gas gun with a 20-round box mag is like you have the capabilities to to fill that role if you need to because at night, you know, night vision and everything, you're going off your laser anyways. And like room clearing distances, it's not like there's a huge amount of error that could really even happen. Like you could be aiming at the dude's chest, you're just going to light him up in the stomach. But even then, at those closer ranges where you might not be zeroed in for that distance, it's still going to be an effective, you know, weapon system going in the rooms. Um, I can't remember if he was clearing with like a bolt gun though or not, in which case I would rather take a pistol. Yeah, it makes sense just to shoot more rounds. Yeah, like you just want that. You want to be able to get those rounds out because you're shooting under dark conditions anyway, so you're not necessarily using the sights on the gun. And I would say it's more important to get rounds out at the enemy than to try and get some, like, you know, single precision shot in, in, a, in a kill zone. York and I carried a, uh, two Glocks. I mean, we carried a ton of frags. We carried, we weren't, like, just have a bolt gun type of thing. We, I don't think I've ever carried a bolt gun on target. No. Totally different setup. I think Ryan and I definitely, during the experiences of that entire deployment, we reassessed ourselves even. I would say that our team alone was was different than the way that most sniper teams were ran and conducted just because we wanted to be ready for that remain over day type operation if that ever happens again. Ryan always had two radios on him, which was like most guys don't do that. Extra ammo and close range capabilities more than anything. As far as bringing the long range stuff, I don't even think we would bring it on, on rods. I had a minimum of four frags on every mission. I carried a ton of bangers just because we were doing the call outs and 
having us up there with those capabilities instead of having to bring extra people up there, you know, less less threat to the force type thing. Uh, and we worked closely together so much, we usually knew what the other one was doing without having to really talk about it much. So it sounds like there's a lot of flexibility of being a sniper in a range regiment where you'll get a lot of roles. And if you want to do the bare minimum, you can. But if you want to go out there and do as much as you can, like it sounds like you guys did everything you possibly could, there's uh, there's room for that. And as long as you're intelligent, respectful, and you gain trust from your platoon, you can do anything. One of the best jobs I, I think I've done to the platoon was just building the route and leaning out on the route. I think that was... It's one of the most satisfying jobs, and it's one stressful job that I probably had. But like as a sniper, that's not a requirement. That's definitely something I stepped up and volunteered for. The first year I did, I was actually voluntold. After that, I I learned to like it, and I was good at it. So yeah, you're way more involved in the planning process now. Like you're a key element to the to the mission, essentially. So like building that trust is a lot easier once you have established that you have a skill set that is a necessity to the platoon and not just something you can do on the side. That, that's definitely what I saw with working with Ryan. He had such a good rapport that when it came to being on target, we could really do whatever we wanted for the most part. There was no uh, second guessing us. Yeah, sounds like a great role, man, and a lot of room for growth where you can push your limits and do what you want. Oh, it's 100%, yeah. I think a lot of people need to understand, like, if you just become a sniper and range version, not necessarily going to be like that. It took a lot of, I mean, it took multiple deployments and a lot of trust to get there. Um, the, the trust issue is probably the biggest one. Uh, if you have a platoon sergeant that doesn't trust you or a PL that doesn't trust you, they're not going to let you lead out. They're not going to let you climb wherever you want. They're going to tell you where to climb and what to do. That was never the case with us because they had that trust. We earned that trust in the training cycle. We earned that trust in every mission, just over and over and over. And yeah, you don't always get a fair shake because there are I would say one downside is that you don't always get the opportunity either to to show your worth, and you kind of get put into this box. So like, okay, he's a sniper. This is what he can do. He's a junior NCO uh, ranger, and that you might just get classified as that guy, and then you don't get a chance to show your your worth to the platoon. And a lot of it has to depend on the platoon sergeant and PL. If you have what I would consider a bad PO, a bad platoon sergeant, and they, they don't want to use you properly, then you're, you're shit out of luck. Luckily, one Bravo, as long as I was there, had a great PO and a great platoon sergeant every time. So you were mentioning the downsides of being a sniper. One downside was you might not get the chance to show what you can do. What are some other downsides of being a sniper in battalion? <laughs> Bro, there are no downsides. No, I'm joking. There, there's a couple downsides. For me... I got more positives than, than negative. Man, downside? Promotions, maybe? Yeah, yeah, you get looked at less for promotions. You're kind of like the faster child. You know, you're, you kind of are an attachment sometimes. But I never really felt that. I, I saw that happen to a couple guys. Maybe they deserved it, maybe not. But man, there's so many positives. I mean, you get treated like a, an adult. You A lot of times we would work out on our own stateside. The sh going to the range was actually fun. It wasn't stressful. Even when we were trying to stress ourselves out, it was way better. There's so many more positives I've found than negatives. I'd say the things I saw maybe were, you know, like we were saying before, you're going to get put into this box by certain leadership that they just view you as, okay, what have you done at battalion so far? All right, well, you were a task spec four. You left the line to go join snipers. So that's all you've done. You know, and so like that can be hurtful because, you know, the politics of, of anything, there's always going to be politics involved. So you might not be able to build the best rapport with higher leadership. You're definitely, there's only one E6, you know, per section. So it limits your promotion rate. And then a lot of times I would say it slows down promotion because like for me, I, if I'd stayed on the line, I would have been a team leader sooner and then gotten my five. Going to snipers, you got, you know, I went over there as a four, but so then I got pushed to the back of the line again. So all the other guys that were already there as fours are going to get fives before me. So I kind of restarted the line and stayed there. But at the same time, going over there completely recharged my outlook and ambitions and drive that regiment. It was like this whole new, 
yeah, it's like I went over there and I was like, dude, this is awesome. I'm learning all this new shit. I'm getting treated like an adult. Like, it's just be here at this time with this stuff. That's it. We're not going to be calling you and harping you if you don't show up. Well, then you're gone, you know. So I, I personally experienced, I had nothing but positives for the most part. The only negatives was like, if I was someone that wanted to, you know, climb the, the ladder as far as rank, that's a slower uh, option to go. But it sounds like all the positives highly outweigh any of those negatives, so. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned going from the line to become a sniper. For those that don't know anything about Ranger Regiment, how do you become a sniper? What is the actual process? I actually was a sniper at 3rd Ranger Bat and 2nd Ranger Bat, and I, I saw a couple different ways about doing it, talking to older guys from the time I was in, and then when we were recruiting younger guys when I was already a section leader. What I noticed was it definitely depends, and it definitely changes. There's a lot of variables. There used to be a, a selection process. They got rid of selection. They brought the selection back, and then they got rid of it. A lot of times it was people were just volunteering for it. So that's the big one. You actually had to have the will and the want to go do it. And then a lot of, uh, I saw at third that at one time they were using just sniper school for the section. Like if you passed, then you can stay. If you failed, you can go. Um, a lot of it was more like a probation period I saw at one time. Come over for a training cycle and then we'll determine if we want you. I think that's probably the best way because you, you can't really, after, you know, two weeks of smoking somebody, you don't really know who they are. But over a course of a six-month training cycle, you know exactly who that person is. I think that's the best way. But I never saw it black and white um, from my time in. It wasn't like you volunteer, you get selected, and then you go through this course, it's passed. It wasn't like that. There's a lot of changes. And I think that's part of it was because, one, the global war on terror changing. Different theory here, different, different things. Just the evolution of range regiment itself is changing. The need of snipers everything along those lines yeah it makes sense just whatever cards you're dealt you just have to make it work 2010 battalion was straight up like hey we don't have enough specialty platoon manning every platoon is going to give us two guys i think they requested at the minimum for them to, to just be tapped so e4 ranger tab send us two guys from every platoon and that's going to that's going to rebuild the manning because for so long so I'd even asked about it as like a real young private. I was like, hey, how do you go to, you know, recce or snipers and stuff? Like I was just interested in it. Regiment does a good job of like, well, don't don't worry about that. Like just worry about what's in front of you right now. It was so hard to be a, a good team leader and then request tell your platoon sergeant, hey, um, I want to go over to, to snipers or I want to go to TSE. And your platoon sergeant's like, well, you're one of my top team leaders. I'm not letting you go. So he gets denied that, stays in the line, never gets a chance to, to kind of grow, you know, another set of skill set. So because of that, the guys are getting out of the specialty platoons, they're getting out of the army, or they're coming back to the line, but no one's replenishing the manning for it that, that's required. So then battalion put down those orders, two guys per platoon, and then we just got voluntold pretty much. I mean, I was lucky because I had already... I think I'd gotten picked for that because I had already mentioned wanting to go over there at some point. Uh, my squad leader, you know, advised me real early on. He's like, wait to get your five first, do some team leader time, and then try to go over. Just because, like what I said earlier, he, he didn't want me to have to wait longer to, to gain rank kind of thing. It was interesting getting put into that, that group of guys, like having to do that whole, like, all right, we're all going whether you want to go or not. I mean, we were taking the psych evaluation, and then based on the psych evaluation was where they told you, you're going to go to K-9, you're going to go to TSC, so on and so forth. Hey, right, Ryan, you mentioned 3rd Ranger Battalion, and you started out there, and then you went over to 2nd Ranger Battalion. What was the difference in culture, if there was any? First, I think all the battalions, they train the same, they look the same, and for, you know, in general, they're, they all pretty much are similar. 3rd Bat definitely has the worst reputation for being assholes, because they are. They're closer to the flagpole. They're more strict on a, a certain things, and that's just because they're they're right next to the 75th. Other than that, a lot of it was the same. I remember hearing stories of like, oh man, 275 sniper. They grow beards. They do whatever they want. And I'm like, dude, that's where I'm going. And then when I reenlisted and went up there, I'm like, man, that's a 
bunch of bullshit. It was the same thing. It's probably a little bit more laid back, but that's, that's, that's pretty much the only difference I know. To be fair, we did have Sears at 275 until 2010, I want to say, or 9. They stopped letting the uh, snipers grow. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly when I came over, they stopped. <laughs> they knew you were coming, man. What a stupid rule change. Yeah, like, hey, coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so sniping, shooting is the main forte, right? That's your primary job, long-distance shooting. So let's just talk about that a little bit. What skills do you need to be a good sniper? Just be calm. You got to be able to relax and assess. I think a lot of it is assessing and calculating how you're going to kind of go through a problem. You know, it's it's not as, as fast as room clearing. Uh, a lot of times you have some distance between you and the target, and that allows you to kind of come up with a, a better uh, plan of attack yourself. To be honest, like when you said that question, the first thing that popped in my mind was, I know we are, we are shooters first, but I would think, the most important thing was like proper radio calls because I've seen the guys that you know they're like yelling on the radio and all that. Um, I've always had, I've always worked really hard to try to make my radio calls you know calm, clear, concise, and I think that was probably one of the one or two most important things as a sniper for our situation because anything that came out of that courtyard or in those buildings, we were relaying it, and if it yeah. wasn't clear. And if you're in a panicked voice, then the, the team leaders and the guys going in are going to be panicked. You can you just need to paint that picture perfect. And I think that was part of the biggest thing. I think, and that's part, and it's really hard for guys to get on that. Because you see guys, maybe shots already been fired. You got to calm down. You know what's going on now. Make that radio call. Being hot shit on the radio is good. Something that I was not strong at. But I, and I wish I would have been. Um, and I was very fortunate where this wasn't a situation where it could have cost me something. Being able to work a radio, understanding fills, you know, all that kind of stuff that you kind of put to the wayside as an infantryman. You're like, whatever, fucking combo guy is going to fix it, not worried about it. But being good at that shit, like being able to do, like, you know, even a call for fire, being good on that stuff. Because, you know, you might not have a, a, an engagement with your weapon. Um, every night, but you will be on that radio relaying information, like vital information, because you know you're, it's you, your sniper buddy. You're the only two that are looking into the compound, so everyone else is relying on you to give this information. And if you can, you know, it's, it's a talent to be able to relay as much information as possible with as little words as possible. That's that's pretty important, especially when people's lives are at risk and it's a split second decision that needs to be made. I totally agree. I would rather have two snipers that are amazing on the radio and average shooting than have like an amazing shooter than that's, you know, poor on the radio. There's so many other moving parts and pieces and guys clearing the rooms and everything. I think the radio is so important. And nobody ever talks about that. Everybody always talks about shooting. And I just think the radio is so important. Communication is number one. And then after that, just staying calm. And then would you say shooting is third after that? Yeah. That being calm part is going to feed right into your shooting. If you're all fucking jacked up, adrenaline's rushing, and all this stuff's going on, and you can't kind of, you know, lack of a better word, find, kind of find your center, you're going to pull shots. You're going to jerk stuff. Your breathing's going to be fucked up. All these different little factors that are, that are going to come in, you know. You might, be, you might be too focused in on one thing and be missing something else going off a few inches to the left kind of thing, you know, looking through that scope or through your night vision or something like that. Perfect example would be this. We, we hit this compound. It was an L-shaped compound um, or L-shaped buildings with a square compound. And I laddered up on one roof. York laddered up on one roof. He had an Afghan with him. I had an Afghan with us for interpreters. I was standing over a open door trying to like, I was standing up trying to lean into if, what I could see because I could hear people down there. I was just trying to see it, but it was kind of hard from my angle. Next thing I know, a shot rings out, and it's York shoots the guy who's literally right below me that I couldn't see. Correct me if I'm wrong, York, but he said he had a chest crack, AK, and he was looking at me. And I'm like, yep. can you imagine if, that, if he wasn't calm or was panicking and he missed, and I'm above him, but it could have been a disaster. So staying calm is definitely, I mean, it's essential. And you're going to put so many rounds downrange shooting-wise. I haven't had to work with guys that were like bad shooters, uh, luckily, but I just feel like it's 
to me, it was easier to be good at shooting. And so I focused on the other things a little bit more intently. Uh, I know you said the range is within 300 meters that most of the rangers and regiment shoot or engage at. What is the average range you need to hit accurately to be an effective sniper? I would honestly say you need to be effective all the way out to like 800 meters. Just imagine if you were only like five, 600 meters and that you go and do a daytime mission and the platoon needs you to kill and do that 800. Like 800 is pretty much the minimum. The odds of getting that shot are rare because we operate at night and all those, you know, night vision and optics and all that stuff, can, it, the capabilities of it, while it has grown significantly, and it, it's honestly, it could be a whole new world now. I've been out of the game for five years, but you can only see so far. You know, a 200-meter engagement with a rifle um, as a ranger assaulter is like, holy shit, that was a far shot. You know, especially at night where you're going off your laser too. At night, you're not going to really engage past 300 meters. Pristine conditions, you might have a 300 meter shot. Good full loom, targets not moving. You can ID in, because we all know, like, while night vision is amazing, you know, that stuff gets grainy and green the further you go, and drastically as well. So it's, it's hard to, to kind of ID stuff. That trip, Ryan got, he had the farthest engagement that I know of, and I got a point blank one. So it's like, it could, you could have this pull a trigger at any distance and be able to, to do that. It's hard to put a like a, a distance down for that, you know? <laughs> Dude, that's a perfect example. Same deployment, point blank, and then a daytime firework. So then with nods, which is night vision, and lasers, is there any math involved in long-distance shooting at night? It's changed a little bit. The math was, was like from the traditional days where guys had to calculate and convert units of measurement between mils and minutes of angles. Nowadays, the reticule you're looking for is measured out in mils, and then the, the adjustments made on the towers of the scope are also in mils. So you have a mil-to-mil scope now, which blows my mind that like this hasn't been a thing you know, 50 years ago. That, that's cut down the math so much now, because you'll, you'll literally measure a guy in your scope, and then you, have, you just have like... Certain things memorized for sure. I used to, I don't do it now, but I used to memorize um, a 40 inch target that takes up um, two mils is 508 meters away. So you, you kind of measure that stuff out. That's about as much math as you should be trying to have to calculate uh, on the fly. So it should be muscle memory, essentially. Pretty much. Like you, if you measure, if you memorize the size of a target in your scope and then what that mill means as far as distance and then from there you have to know how much of a hold or how much to dial for that shot so there's kind of like three boxes that you got to check to know your your final shot and people what people need to understand when they're you're working at night is it's a lot harder to i i think it's a lot harder to judge distance and a lot of times york and i didn't have time to sit there and be like hey bro like how far do you think that guy is with the gun shooting at us you just look at it and you'd be like Dude, it looks like 75 meters. Like, you're not going to, you know, anything that's like 100 and in, you just point and shoot, man. Anything past 300, that's when you start having to do the math. But at nighttime, dude, I just put my crosshairs on guys and squeeze. Now, during the daytime, that's when things got different. Because I felt like during the daytime missions, we had a little bit more time to calculate. We had, we even had a, you know, spotting scope. We had our... You know, our calculator, we had everything. That's a little bit yeah. different. Yeah, like uh, sketches, all that. But nighttime, man, especially the stuff we were doing, especially if you're in contact, there's definitely no math going on. I had all my dope, my data. I had it laminated on my buttstock in case I forgot it. If I'm in, the, you know, like, you're stressed out, you, you got to look at your buttstock, bam, it's there. I never yeah. really had to worry about it. Yeah, the, the math isn't, it's not overwhelming. I'm a terrible math student. I was always terrible at math. You know, all the way through, I struggled through it. I took fucking pre-algebra three times in high school. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was bad. When I got over to the sniper platoon, I was I was a little worried about that. All the formulas and stuff, it's a lot of constants. You're dealing with a lot of constants, and you're just kind of plugging in numbers. For some reason, because putting this math together, and then in real time, you're going to make something happen, it was easier for me to wrap my brain around the, the number side of it. So it's not too bad. It's mostly memorizing and then, like, memorizing holds and stuff based on distances. That's really about it. 
when it comes to math, you know, the first thing that pops in my mind was about, uh, like, the leadership you get. If you have, like, a good team leader or a good section leader, they're going to take their time with you until you get it. They're going to they're gonna write it out. They're going to put it on the whiteboard. They're going to let you look at it, explain it, answer your questions. I found it that some guys had poor leadership. Like, I just saw it in the AOs when we're training, and that made the math very difficult. And it was more like a leadership error, I found. Ryan, I heard you made an impressive shot overseas, and York was saying on one of his trips, you had a long shot and he had a point-blank shot. Would you mind sharing that story? Yeah, well, what's crazy about that, every time I think about that, I'm like, yeah, I got a really long shot. The shot was 890 meters, okay? It was during the day. Um, I think I've only had like half a dozen daytime missions too, so it was just right place, right time, like the sniper's dream, right? Perfect wind conditions, like zero all the way out to target. York and I were in the shade, on the roof, and then we transitioned over to like this other side of the roof just to get, you know, to lay down and get better. Um, there's a bunch of guys with AK chest racks lined up on that road, and like, man, I'd say like 500 meters out, there's a guy with a campfire, smoke was going straight up. The, where the, the guys, where the fighters were with the chest racks and AKs on the back side of them was a hill with flags. In Afghanistan, they put flags on all the grave sites, and the flags weren't moving. So halfway between there, we had a campfire to read the wind. On the back side, we had flags to read the wind. It was like as if you could make up the perfect situation. We engaged. I initially missed high. I adjusted and shot again, and then I dropped the dude. Of course, they scattered like cockroaches. I like I was stoked, obviously, right? That was awesome. But the problem with that is like the mission itself was crappy, right? Because that's the same mission. Holds died. Like every time I talk about that mission, I'm like, dude, that mission sucked. Like even though I did like. I felt like I, I got like what I wanted from a daytime mission. It was still like a completely shitty mission. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Anyone losing their life, I mean, that it's going to outweigh no matter what the person does on target is not going to matter. Well, it was that first hour into the mission. We got a ranger killed and then one injured. And then York, you engaged the guy there, right? Yeah, so that's the one where uh, we went to his pump house. We uh, engaged with, with aircraft first and then went back to check on the bodies. And then we only found two of the four. So then the idea was, oh, hey, maybe they're in this, this small little pump house near you guys. And it's one of those things where it's like we've all done it a million times and they're never in there. And then this time they were. And they were, I, I mean, they were waiting for us because we, we had literally walked by them at some point. That's when I went to go check it out and get in tight. They started shooting at the team that was trying to get in, which is where Holtz was leading it. They engaged with Holtz, and then I just stuck my barrel into like essentially what I would just call a a gun port, so just a you know hole in the wall. And it was about knee height, maybe. So I stick my barrel in there, and I was just at that point just gonna squeeze shots and try to get heads down, try to get them to stop shooting, whatever you know, whatever I could make happen. And I feel my gun hit something, and I hear someone inside go like, ugh, you know, like I just poked them real hard. And that's when I realized, like, oh, fuck, there's someone on the other side of this barrel. And then I just started dumping rounds into the room. That was, uh, yeah, that was crazy, man. I, uh, that's, like I was saying before, like, having that gas gun, uh, that versatility to be able to shoot, you know, 800 meters. And then, like Ryan did that, that later on that day. And then for me to be able to be in close combat like that and lead a team into that room later on was, was huge. Definitely, especially for the mission set that we were doing overseas. Yeah, for people listening, I mean, when you just think about it, like we intel that night, we were in contact that night, and the sun comes up, we have to change out our gear, like take off our night vision and all that, and then engage people during the day. Like, it's different different situations, different gear. Really cool. That's where all the training comes in. Like we're saying, that, that mission was cool, but it was also very shitty at the same time. So it sounds like snipers in Ranger Regiment have to be very flexible, intelligent dudes, capable of anything thrown at them. So from all of the snipers that you've seen, from all the special operation units, the big army, big navy, wherever, even other countries, who do you think has the best snipers? I actually did the International Sniper Comp, and then I did the National Guard Sniper Comp. I will say the comps are fun. They're very challenging, but they aren't a deployment, that's for sure. Deployment-wise, uh, I only worked with the SEALs, so I only have worked with the SEAL snipers. 
I actually got along with those guys. I love them. I know a lot, there's a lot of like conflict between Rangers and Seals and stuff, but I actually got along with them great. I think their snipers and our snipers work well together. But speaking of like other countries and, and different you know, snipers during the sniper comp, it's kind of hard to say. It all depends on the team. When I went there, the first place finishers were the Marines. The year before, it was the Army Marksmanship Unit which took it like I think two or three years in a row and then they told the army marksmanship unit couldn't do it no more because they were just cleaning the house so I think it all depends and a lot of it my partner and I we didn't get along I think we trained like two weeks before we went to the comp together if you don't like somebody and you train two weeks with them like you're not going to do well so it, it all depends I did know that the Irish the Ireland army guys they were the worst all they talked about were like hey where's the pub at when I was in Ireland, uh, there was this sign on the wall in one of the restaurants I was eating that said that the Irish would take over the world if God didn't invent beer. It's like, hmm. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, dude, I, I believe it. What type of guy do you see excelling there? If you had a personality type or different characteristics, what type of guy would you recommend volunteering if you knew him? What I think is funny is you, they, you're required to take a psych evaluation before going to sniper school. Regiment implemented that as well. I, they, it seemed to me that that was more of a like personality test. Like we want to see which specialty platoon you're going to mesh the best with. You know, one of the things I took away from that psych evaluation is just like being honest with myself was like they said, you have to test a certain level of sociopath. You have to be sociopathic like enough, but then you can't be so far that you, you know, might go into like a psychopath type personality. All those questions were stuff. Did you ever like torture animals as a kid or like, you know, play with dead shit and like weird shit like that? And they ask you like 50 different ways. So you can't, they try to get narrow you down on that one. The one of the, the reasoning behind that was though, because, and this is something I, I did realize later on is it's a lot easier to engage someone uh, when they're a direct threat, whether to you or the platoon. If they're holding a gun and they're shooting it. It's cool. No problem. We're pulling triggers. When you got to take shots on, people whose age you might not be able to identify perfectly or they're right on that line but you know hey this is a key target like he's going to walk right over to my to the rest of the platoon any second you know and then start squeezing triggers you have to have a little bit of that be able to pull the trigger and not necessarily the most direct threat circumstances which for some guys is kind of tough i feel like i grew up like a totally normal american kid no weird shit about me i mean i did love the idea of being in the military since i was really young as far as like looking for a personality trait in someone, it's kind of hard to tell because I've worked with so many different kinds of personalities even. It's like you can have all these different personalities, but so long as they have these very specific traits within that, then they'll be able to operate well as a, as a sniper. I think as a, when I took over the Bravo section, sniper section, I wanted the most laid back guys. What I mean by that, like guys like York, they're just super easy to get along with. When you got a high strung you know, like fire team dude that's like, yeah, let's kick this door up. I'm like, bro, we're snipers, man. Like, <laughs> we're going to go eat breakfast. We're going to go work out. And we might go to the range later. That's the personality I wanted. I think they're, they're way easier to work with. Um, that's pretty much the only thing I was looking for. The three main things that a good sniper needs could also be characteristics of just being a good communicator. And then after that, it's being calm and then being a good shot. And then, of course, there's always a physical aspect to it. Something that I was shocked to hear, we had a guy come over from, from being a, t a team leader who had been, he'd been wounded pretty severely. He came over because he said, I requested to come to snipers because I figured it's less work. It's easier to do physically. And it kind of made me laugh because my first deployment with Ryan, we walked up this fucking crazy ass mountain. We're, we're wearing all, I'm wearing all my gear and all this shit. And Ryan's up on this roof and I'm, I'm new to the whole thing. Ryan and I had known each other for like less than a couple weeks, you know, a few weeks at this point. And I'm trying to like run over and catch up with them. And I've never been let off the leash before. So with, with that, there's a lot of room to not get, I mean, I wasn't lost, but you're used to having like a, you know, a team leader or a squad leader, like someone there to, to let you know when it's okay to do something. As a sniper, you got to be proactive and just know you have the, the right intentions and you're going to make the right decision. So, in trying to catch up with Ryan, I started climbing up. I just found a random wooden ladder that was at the compound. So I started climbing up it, and the rungs, like, snapped on me. 
And at the last second, I just leaped for the building and caught the edge of it. And I, all I could do at that point, like, I'm stuck. I'm not, I'm fucked right now. And all I could do is reach for my radio and call for Ryan. Like, hey, come over to the south side of building 42 or something like that. He comes over to me and he reaches down. And he just, I just remember saying, like, welcome to snipers. And he, like, helps me, like, pull me up the side of the building. Being physically in shape to be able to climb buildings is uh, huge, I would say, because it, it allows you so many opportunities to get better advantages on the target. That was one of your first climbs with an issue. What's funny is, like, one of my first climbs with my first team leader, like, my first deployment as a sniper, we climbed a three-story building. I remember, I thought he was joking. Like, I'm on target, and he's like, all right, let's go. And he puts this ladder up there, and the ladder ends at my chest because it was one of those hook ladders. And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, dude, I used everything I had to pull myself up. And I'm like, holy shit, I got I to gotta work out, dude. Like, even though we were working out, like, it was different. Yeah, I thought I was in great shape. Doing, like, just pull-ups with all your shit on, doing, being able to do a muscle-up, I think would be a great... I would almost make that, like, a prerequisite. How many muscle-ups can you do? We use different ladders. The ladders don't always work out. Um, a lot of times you have, like, a four- or five-foot gap where you have to literally muscle yourself up. When you're just talking about muscle-up, you literally sometimes have to do that on top of the roof. And you have kit. You have your gun. Right. Well, trying to be as silent as you can. Definitely the physical aspect, yeah, you have to be on top of it. Yeah, well, that's good to know. So outside of running, doing pull-ups and or muscle-ups, something with your kit on just to get used to all that weight you're going to have to pull around. So then you guys were in SNOT and Regiment for several years, and you guys went on many deployments and had a good time, it sounds like. You guys have been out for a while now, just like me. Have you guys had any difficulty or issues reintegrating back into normal society? I think I've done better than, than the average guy, maybe. I have a really strong connection with the family. They've always been there for me, so like having that support was always there even when I was going through the military. Any other teenager, you get pissed off at your parents, you're sick of their shit, you know, yada, yada, yada. You move out and then you realize I did have, I was fortunate to have that understanding all of a sudden of like, oh, this is all the stuff my parents were trying to set me up for. And then all of a sudden they go from being mom and dad to more of, they're just people now. And you start realizing that shit as you get older and going through life. And having that kind of allowed me to come home and, not be as self-destructive. I could talk to them easily. They're always there for me. I've been pretty lucky at being able to make friends kind of wherever I go. So that's always been good. Staying busy is really fucking important because my low times are when I'm not doing anything or when I wasn't working or you have time to give yourself self-doubt rather than being busy doing something, getting stuff accomplished. And that's, I manage to, to stay away from that as much as I different units, different walks of life, different times, 
And the thing about contracting is people come and go so often. It's not the same. It's not like the team that you grew up with. It's not the squad you grew up with. You, you don't have that hardship of the training cycle and the deployments together. It's different. I'm telling everyone it's different. I've seen it to where I was disappointed. I worked different contracting gigs. And I'm like, man, it's, just, it's not the same. I thought it would be the same. The money's great, but it's different. That's why I work stateside. Yeah, I completely agree with you, man. My experience from contracting after the military was pretty similar to yours, where I expected a lot from it, and it just was not that. It wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't challenging. It wasn't hard. You just sit there, and it's nice because you collect a big paycheck. But as soon as you stop working, that goes away, and your buddies that you're there with, they just go back to their homes, and you don't really talk that much. Everyone talks about the money, like, oh, the money's so great. The money can be good, right? I'm not going to lie. I made some decent money contracting. But me, I'm married with, with kids, and I'm like, man, this money sucks, dude. Like, <laughs> it's not enough. Because I, I spent six months away, and my youngest, I missed the birth of them. So you're telling me six months away from the family, missing the birth of my last child, is that worth it? No, man, not worth it. Now, being in the military, I, I don't want to say it's worth missing the, the birth of my child, but it's different. Agreed. Spencer, Ryan mentioned earlier that you have a club. So the Killer Man Sons is a motorcycle club that you are a chapter leader of. Is that correct? Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about it and what you guys have done after the military to help guys out? Killer Man Sons is also abbreviated as KMS. It's a club that was created specifically for members of 75th Ranger Regiment to be able to be a part of. The entire purpose of the club is to, you know, after the military, you lose a lot of connections with these guys that you feel like you're going to have these lifelong relationships with, you know, these lifelong friendships. While that is true, it is very easy to get busy in life because if you're not taking care of yourself, you know, after the military, you're not going to be successful. You have to put you or yourself as a priority, you know, to a certain extent. And the military trains you not to do that. So I think that a lot of guys struggle with that. With the club... This gives, gives guys an opportunity to link back up with other Rangers from any era. We got guys from the 70s, 80s, all that stuff. We got guys from all, all walks of life. And it gives you this you know, ability to, to reconnect with guys who come from a similar background. You can talk about whatever you want with them. There's no PC culture with them. You know, Even if you have ideas that are opposing to normal ranger type politics it's like it's an open place to be able to talk about that stuff and be part of that and doing it with the club side of things there's a little bit of like an outlaw aspect to it i always looked at special operations as in a lot of ways the outlaws of the military because we do we, everything's in like unconventional for us for the most part it's not your standard clean cut conventional operations we do stuff that's outside the box we do stuff that maybe people don't want to talk about. You know, all those elements that go with it. And there's guys that are they're just like that when they get home. Uh, they feel like they're outside of society's normal standards and rules. And we're always like that. And we didn't experience it while we were in because we had such a huge group of friends to draw from. 20 of us go out to the bar. We get to do whatever we want. Uh, and, we're, and there's always someone there looking out for each other. So with KMS, this was created to kind of continue that same idea, same bonds and friendship and camaraderie through civilian life, you know, as veterans. And that's offered for, like I said, anyone that was in part of the 75th or guys that were EOD that gets attached to us directly, guys that were on the ground with us and can be kind of vetted. It's open for those guys as well. Yeah, it sounds like a great group to be a part of, man. I personally, I, I appreciate that because I know from my experiences dealing with depression, not having someone to reach out to, it makes a big difference if you know there's a bunch of guys out there and then you can go ride around on your bike and go up to meetups, go hang out, and you know there's someone there for you, which is awesome. I got, I got out of the military, went back to Southern California, started riding bikes uh, real heavily. I can say that the only thing that's come close to me so far to run it off the back of a Chinook or something, you know, you're running off the bird, racking around in the gun, running through the brownout, hitting the X, and going right into the target building. The only thing that's come close to that is like splitting lanes on a Harley and just fucking doing all that high intensity stuff. It's definitely an adrenaline rush. So there's a little bit of that with it as well. You know, it's, and it's definitely a club. It's obviously a motorcycle club, so it's geared towards motorcycle enthusiasts, guys that want to be part of that kind of lifestyle and, and that do ride. While it's not, I would say, you know, open for every ranger, um, it is for the rangers that need that kind of thing. There's, there's really nothing for those guys. 
a lot of veteran organizations are they want the clean polished hey this is us taking care of everyone kind of thing so that's that's kind of what makes the, the club different from those that sounds like a great place to be and ryan uh, you have a book coming out soon what is it called and where can people find it so i do have a book coming out the book the book mostly is based around the extortion one seven crash our 2011 deployment what led up to it what happens after it a lot of people don't know guys our story the rangers that were working side by side the actual story you google that mission and it's it's you find lies you find bullshit everything's false i'm sure there's some truth in those stories but most of the part it's it's half lies it's kind of irritating i'm sure it's irritating for the ones that you know lost loved ones because the true story's not out there what bugs me is a lot of people don't know what we did after that we went back into that that valley the missions that went after that like there's so much stuff and the rangers they're they're relentless man our platoon was relentless at deployment we had three platoon sergeants in one deployment. Nobody talks about that. And it wasn't because they got fired. It's because they got hurt. You know what I mean? Just a tremendous amount of contact. The biggest catastrophe in the whole global war, uh, the single incident, biggest catastrophe was Extortion 170. More Americans died on that crash than any other mission. Single mission. And we, we took part of it. We were a huge part of it. I'm sure you guys would agree. Uh, when you Google it, it's kind of irritating. Your book's coming out later this year, and then people can look out on social media to see when it comes out and hear the the true story. Definitely. That wraps up just about everything. It's been a pleasure talking with you guys. Thanks for sharing your stories and your experiences. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us on. To get more information about the process of joining, go to precombatcheck.com. Subscribe to this podcast to hear from more current and former members of the United States military. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for future episodes.